Hi, my name's Claire Murray, and I'm the managing partner of specialist employment partnership and regulatory firm CM Murray. For today's purposes, though, I am delighted to be hosting the next edition of Law Firm Founder Podcasts. And today I am really delighted to be speaking to Martin Day of Lee Day. It's taken me some considerable time to pluck up the nerve to ask Martin to come on this podcast series. Um, he's a bit of a hero. Uh, he's a, an environmental and human rights warrior, and um, he's one of the best known names in the, the legal sector in the UK. He co-founded Lee Day, which is a huge name in the world of consumer protection, personal injury, international and environmental issues, as well as human rights. So hopefully today we're going to get some insights from Martin on founding a firm. It's been more than two decades, two and a half decades uh, since Lee Day was set up. And more importantly, on growing it, making it successful um, and vision for the future. So welcome, Martin. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And I wonder if you can just tell us about the journey to setting up Lee Day? What, what, was the, what was the genesis there? I think there were two or three on high, Claire. Uh, delighted to be on, and thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, you could have always invited me earlier. I would have been very happy, but uh, I'm delighted to be with you today. Um, two or three things, I think, were the drivers. One, for me as an individual, I recognised quite early on that I was a bit of a pain in the arse when it came to being an employee, and uh, it was never going to work for me to be... Uh, bossed about by anybody else, it was just not in my nature. Uh, so I recognised that if I was ever going to make a success of anything, that I'd have to do it on my own. Secondly, I had the benefit of working with Sarah Lee when I was at Vineman's uh, back in the 1980s, and we got on very well together. And uh, she was about, uh, or is about 20, about 15, 18 years older than me. And uh, I recognised in myself that I needed somebody with that sort of age and wisdom, as particularly at the time, to kind of knock me back on some of the madder ideas that I might, have, you know, thinking of having. So having somebody to uh, balance my energy and drive with somebody with a bit of wisdom uh, to actually uh, curtail some of the more excess side of what my character was, I think was very important. And then the third was, I was always very clear that we wanted a firm that was just acting for individuals, only acting for claimants in cases, and that we wanted to make sure that we were providing a service of quality for them in the same way that you would expect if you were a commercial client getting going to some of the big uh, magic circle firms. So we wanted to ensure we were big enough to provide that sort of quality service. And this was back in 1987, where having a, a female co-founder, that in itself would have been quite unusual. Um, even now, that there aren't too many female founders of law firms. So um, it's a really interesting that, you know, as early as back in the, the late 80s, you know, you were visionary, both of you in that respect, even then. And was that, I mean, was the gender diversity then and now sort of a feature at all of your development, of your plans? I mean, the main thing was that she and I got on really well and I, you know, she was a really big uh, driver in terms of what I thought we could achieve. Uh, I think that the, the gender thing 
certainly did play a role. And we always felt that providing women, good quality women, lawyers, uh, support staff, um, that that was a big part of who we wanted to be. Uh, so we've always had 70, 80% women in the firm. Um, and I think that stood us in really good stead. I think it's really, you know, we've been, uh, we made sure right from the word go that we had good flexible policies, that we were uh, supported to women going off on maternity leave and made sure that there was flexibility for when they returned. So, you know, we always tried to make sure that if you were at Lee Day as a woman, that it was as, you know, good as we could make it. Fantastic. So the firm now is around 750 employees across three offices. I mean, could you ever have imagined that when you first set up the firm with Sarah? Was that part of the vision? Um, call me a bit dim, but I've never been a man with actually a massive amount of vision, actually. I, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about what the next year was, never mind the next 10, 20, 35 years would be. Uh, all I ever really wanted to do was to provide good quality service to do interesting cases. I think the, the thing that really got us going in the right path for, for us was that when we, we started up in June 1987, and just before we started, I managed to get some instructions from Greenpeace to do with the pipe blocking at Sellafield, the nuclear facility up on the northeast uh, in the Lake District, uh, northwest, sorry, in the Lake District. And um, that was a massively interesting case that we got involved in right as we were starting up and got, there was quite a lot of media coverage about the case. And um, it, it was kind of, for me, a first dawning realisation that having a firm that was my own firm with Sarah, that we could take on these groundbreaking cases. We didn't have to uh, go and report to a lot of Jobsworths who were telling us not to do this, that or the other. We could make our own decisions. And um, and I loved it and I felt, well, that's it. You know, what the firm is about is providing good quality service, but at the same time, looking to take on groundbreaking cases that uh, that would make mean that it was stimulating for us as lawyers and hopefully making a big difference in society. Yeah, incredible. And when you approach those sort of cases, and I know you've, you've had a number since then of really very substantial group actions, for example. I mean, look, you look at the size and scale of them. How do you firstly work out which you're going to take on and then how you're going to fund them and how you're going to kind of coordinate them all? I mean, do you have a protocol for that sort of thing? How do you approach it? Well, things have changed over the years in terms of our group claims. It's always been a part of my role to kind of gauge whether we're going to take a case on or not. Mm. Uh, so it was more informally in the old days, but now I chair the risk assessment committee in the firm where we, you know, we, we carry out that review. And you know, I try and be as positive as possible in terms of partners coming forward with ideas. You want to encourage that. So you don't want to be a miserable old bastard in the corner saying no to everything. But at the same time, you, know, you also recognise that for a case to win, it's got to have the right resonance, particularly if you are looking to break the boundaries of the law then I think to succeed in that, you've really got to have cases that you feel a judge is going to feel, wow, that is terrible what happened. And the Mau Mau case is perhaps one of the best examples of that. This is where we represented a few thousand Kenyans who had been involved in the Mau Mau, which was the freedom fighters back in the 1950s in Kenya. And uh, they asked me to represent them in a case against the British government. To be frank, I'd never even heard of the Mau Mau when they came and knocked on my door in the Nairobi hotel I was staying at. 
And uh, it's, um, uh, but, but the more I looked at it, the more I felt, well, a judge is really going to say, this is terrible. You know, what the British did to the Mau Mau to try and stop them getting uh, independence was absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. And even though 50, 60 years had passed since the uh, events, uh, I felt that, you know, it would grab a judge. And I think that's absolutely what it did do. And just a little aside, when during the course of the case, one of our clerks had to pop around to the, uh, to the courts to deliver some files to the judge's clerk. And the, uh, they rang up from the office and the judge himself came down saying that his clerk was actually away for the moment, but uh, coming down to pick up the files. And he said, well, what's this case? And he said, oh, it's the Mau Mau case, my Lord. And the judge said, Wow, that is such an interesting case. And I think if you if you get that, if you get a judge who actually is interested in the case yeah. um, and feels some sort of sympathy with what's gone on, then you're half the way there to winning. And you do, you have taken on a lot of cases where there's that real sort of anyone looking from the outside you know, has a real visceral reaction to, to the sense of injustice um, that, that seems to have been perpetrated in the particular cases. Um, and obviously the Mau Mau is, is one of them. I, and I know you've been involved in a number of other cases. You're, you're currently involved, I think, in the, the Volkswagen emissions cases. Um, I don't know if there, there's more you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, the emission case is really interesting. You know, we've now got something like a quarter of a million clients on the various different manufacturers across the board, which is a huge number, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, I think people feel genuinely very angry car manufacturers for trying to get around the rules in terms of the level of environmental emissions that are coming out of these cars um, and basically playing the system uh, to try and avoid the, the, the regulations that were trying to were put in place to try and stop the emissions being too high. So yeah, I think people feel very angry and I think it's quite right that we uh, pursue these claims and hopefully succeed in taking on the manufacturers. I mean, climate-related cases are so um, close to the surface now with with everyone that it seems like a no-brainer. So you talked about the Myanmar case being a real turning point. Have there been any other sort of major turning points along the way, you know, in your journey as a founder? Well, we had a period in the 1990s where I was starting doing a series of group claims but it was there were tough cases and uh, we ended up losing. So um, about four or five cases on the trial. I remember the, the Times back in 2000, the year 2000, ran an article saying King of the Losers uh, with a big picture of me. And, uh, and it was true in a way. You know, we were we you know, we tried a variety of different cases, pressing the boundaries and didn't succeed. But it was a massive learning curve for me. And we. In that year, we managed to succeed in bringing a claim on behalf of a few thousand uh, former uh, POWs of the Japanese, and we managed to get them each £10,000, and that was quite a turning point, because since then, we've only lost two or three cases, um, and we've had a whole series of good cases that run, but that was a real turning point, as I say, from becoming king of the losers to king of the winners. <laughs> I think it's uh, been a lot more complimentary to you since, since then. Uh, from what I've read um, so I mean those without going into too much you know without going into confidential detail I mean those are those group claims are those are big claims to fund and presumably significant risk if they go wrong and 
I mean, is, is there anything just sort of in, in terms of principles that, that you would say about the approach to, you know, the, the risk around those types of cases? Well, the risk has changed dramatically in the last few years. So back in the 2000s and in the 2010s, we would, as a firm, pretty much fund all the cases ourselves. And we did, you know, largely pretty well, but, there, you know, we did take the odd hit. And, you know, one or two cases cost us 10, 15 million pounds to lose. You know, so, it, you know, no win, no fee without any funding. It can hit you pretty hard. But in the last four or five years, we've managed to get quite a few of our cases, like the emission claims, funded by outside uh, commercial enterprises. Uh, and that makes life a lot easier. If you can get funding, even if you lose, you walk away with 60, 70% of your costs. So it's actually, uh, is quite reasonable. Um, so it takes a lot of the pressure out from the system. And, um, uh, you know, it would look as though that funding is here to stay, certainly in the medium term future. Um, and, you know, our track record is sufficiently good that we do have funders knocking on our door all the time to talk about bringing these cases. So. You know, I think it, it's taking a lot of pressure off the firm, means partners can sleep a bit more easily at night uh, without the risk, because it was much like a yo-yo going up and down. Uh, but it smoothed out a lot of this last three or four years. That's good. I mean, it means that you're not taking all of the risk as a firm yourself, which is, yeah, talk about sleeping at night. That's, yeah, that can be challenging. So what? So how do you, you know, throughout this period where you've been initially you know, kind of a bit more exposed on some of these cases and then um, more laterally, uh, uh, you know, with background with funding support, but still with the risk of really large scale litigation. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you keep yourself together? You know, I mean, that is a lot of stress. I know you've got a lot of partners now and it's a big firm, but you're still ultimately, you know, it bears your name over the door. You're still the co-founder. How do you sleep at night? What are the things that have helped? Well, I'm a slightly a bit of a weirdo because actually I don't really worry at all. Mm. Um, now is that uh, my wife, when we had all our regulatory grief, that it still didn't worry me that much. You know, as in the end, I like a good challenge in life and feel what's the point of being it unless you're pushing against the boundaries. Uh, otherwise, life's too boring. So much for me, it's the challenge that's the excitement, the thing that, you know, gets me, drives me out of bed in the morning uh, and, you know, makes me want to, you know, get in there and do whatever we can with cases. So um, I've never found myself worrying. I never really kind of worried right from the start that things may go... Uh, belly up um you know i always felt sufficiently confident in myself maybe misplaced at times but confident in myself but also the team that we kind of picked around us that you? you know in the end you're only as good as the team that you're you're working with and we've managed to get good people who tended to stay so you know that they you know you can rely on people's judgments and you kind of increasingly feel confident in the people around you uh it makes it all you know comparatively easy so, I mean, do you think that's a kind of a key attribute in um, in a founder of a law firm to have low levels of anxiety and uh, high levels of confidence and positivity? If you're somebody who's stressing out all the time, never bother, you know, is that it's going to be too much. Mm. And I was talking to my, one of my sons, you know, asking, he's in PR, asking whether he'd ever be interested in owning his own firm. He looked at me as I was man, man, and said, look, I'm not like you, Dad. And, you know, and it's true, you know, in the end, it's got to be in your makeup, hasn't it? You've got to feel that you are confident about your own skills and not worry 
too much about the downside and be sufficiently confident that the upside will win out. So, you know, certainly that's been true for me that I've never really worried about the risks of it involved. And, uh, you know, as you get bigger and bigger, you know, the more and more people are shouldering that burden with you. So, uh, you know, I feel, you know, very confident at this stage of our lives that the firm will continue to thrive and grow and uh, encourage new, good, young, quality people to come into the firm and take over the mantle. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel about the idea of legacy? I've had the, I've had this discussion with, a, you know, a few different law firm founders, and uh, one of them uh, was really interesting. He was like, you know, forget about legacy. It's what about it's about what's going on now and legacy will take care of itself. And someday I'll throw away the keys and I won't worry about it. And then others are much more, you know, I want to build something that's long term and sustainable to pass on to next generation. I just wonder if you have any particular thoughts about legacy, whether founders should worry about it at all or just enjoy what they're doing. Well, I think that's very largely who I am. You know, I very much live for today. I'm not a man who spends a great deal of time worrying about tomorrow. So, yeah, I'm very rather more of the idea that uh, enjoy what you're doing now and tomorrow will take care of itself. Having said that, it's not going to be that many years before I I hang up my boots. So, you know, I will hopefully enjoy looking at Lee Day from afar uh, and seeing it thrive and, and develop. So, you know, I've perhaps got a mixture of the two sides to me in terms of how I see the future of the firm. Okay, thank you. Can we just come back to some of the, you know, we talked about some of the highlights and turning points, uh, you know, along the journey, but can we just talk about some of the more challenging times? Obviously, you've got a very robust uh, uh, outlook, but I just wonder if there are, you know, particular challenging things that you've dealt with. I mean, some of them are obviously out there on public record, and then there'll be others that, that are not, but sort of how you've approached those challenges. Well, I think without any question, the biggest, the toughest time for the firm was the when the regulator took us on to do with our Iraqi work. And uh, it was basically something that you know, the regulator um, charges with various different offences to do with our Iraqi work. Um, there were diff- 20 different sets of charges, so it was quite a big deal. Mm. And uh, the case went to tribunal for 10 weeks. Uh, and then on to an appeal, and we were successful at both levels. But certainly for two or three years, you know, it was a very massive part of our everyday life. And, you know, it was obviously a cloud that hung over at the firm. Um, but to be frank, Claire, right from the very word go, you know, when, when we get served with the charges, I spend about a week going through them all, checking out what we did. And I came away from that feeling confident that we'd actually done the right thing. If I'd have come away thinking, shit, we'd, you know, we'd made a big mess up of something, then I would have absolutely put our hands up straight away to the regulator and said, look, mea culpa, you know, we're really sorry. It will totally take a slap over the wrist. But I never did. I felt absolutely we were right in what we did um, and the regulator was totally wrong in what they did. So I was very happy to have the battle. And uh, again, my wife says I'm a bit weird, but I actually quite enjoyed the challenge. You know, it was really, I was on the witness box for four days. And uh, one of the great moments of my life at the end of the four days was the uh, was at my own QC when it came to re-examination and saying she got no questions. Um, you know, and I felt good, you know, thank goodness for that. 
And, uh, you know, I did feel all the way through that the regulator got it wrong. You know, that uh, it was very much tied to the politics of the time, uh, very close to the Tory government. Um, and I thought it was a big mistake to take us on. You know, I thought it was not right. Um, and, you know, they, they ended up with a bit of a bloody nose. So hopefully it was a lesson for them. And it was certainly a lesson for me that, you know, when you're in a corner and uh, might is on your right is on your side, then fine. I mean, would you, I mean, that's a really helpful suggestion in itself. It's not unusual for law firms, obviously, to be subject to scrutiny by, uh, unwelcome scrutiny by the, by the regulator. I just wonder if you've got any particular sort of suggestions as to how to approach this sort of thing, um, just in practice, if you are the founder and how to get through it. Well, the biggest thing I would say to people is get insured. Is the you know is the very it's not a part of your PII insurance, and uh, we totally fortunately I'd like to say it was all by some big design by me, but it certainly wasn't true. We'd been sued by an employer on a totally crap case years before. We'd taken out uh, special officers uh, insurance, mm. and I think it cost us like five thousand pounds a year. It was some totally two bit insurance, but when we were checking through our insurance policies, when the regulatory charges came in, uh, we found this policy which covered us up to five million pounds. Well, we used every penny of that, I can tell you. Uh, we had a fantastic QC, but she wasn't cheap. Uh, so, you know, even for a big firm, the costs are going to be pretty eye-watering. Uh, so get insured, you know, because we can all make mistakes. And, uh, you know, to be fair, the regulator is normally pretty fine with us. You know, I've got no criticisms in the normal day-to-day -day life, uh, the relationship between us and the, the regulator. But they got a bee in their bonnet about this one particular issue, uh, which, as I say, you know, I felt was wrong, but they decided to pursue it. And uh, it cost many millions of pounds to defend the action. So... You know, if you at all worried, if I would recommend to people that they take out the insurance. So I think that's brilliant advice. And I remember reading um, a piece shortly after you were successful uh, where you talked about the importance of taking out that sort of insurance. And I remember we did that as a firm on, you know, the D&O cover directly in response to what you said at the time. Um, and I think that's amazing advice. I think it's really good and important. Advice. I'm glad the occasional thing I'll say is, is of use to people. So a couple of other things. So uh, what's really nuts about, about Lee Day is that although you are clearly a very, um, personally a very strong brand and a very well-known individual figure, you have been able to create a really strong institutional brand for Lee Day you know, as a corporate entity, some someone else, another founder that I talked with in a previous episode talked about the difference between kind of um, creating a smushed up collective of individual partner brands, you know, that can be quite fragile um, if, you know, individual partners leave and creating an overarching institutional brand, like in their case, they wanted to be like the Netflix of law. Um, and my impression is that, my strong impression is that you've successfully managed to create this institutional brand for Lee Day. And I just wondered if there are particular um, things that you've done that you think have made a difference in achieving that. Or, I mean, maybe you might disagree with me, but uh, does anything particularly stand out? 
we were very clear from the word go about what Lido was about. And I think when people come to us, they, they buy into the brand, they buy into the ethos of the place. Yeah, I can hardly remember anybody saying, look, I think this is wrong. You know, obviously there are nuances and different people might, you know, slightly different. So we've got a Manchester office where they tend to be a little bit more commercial than we are in London. Um, but that's fine. You know, you can live within the fact that within a brand that you will have, you know, a bit of variation. Um, but still the kind of primary ethos rings out. And, you know, when, uh, you know, we try and give partners a lot of leeway in terms of what they do, but within the kind of general context of, of who Leader is. So, you know, I think it's not been that difficult actually to have people to buy into the brand. Usually people come to us if they are lateral hires because of the brand, you know, so it's pretty rare that you get somebody not knowing who we were when they were coming to us. Um, and certainly the youngsters, when they come up through the training system and all that, then nearly always they're letting all about who Lee Day is and they want to be a part of it. And I, I guess you've clearly got a very specific sense of purpose in what you do as a firm. I mean, how would you describe the culture of the firm and, and, and how have you achieved that? Well, the feeling in the firm is we want to treat our staff as we'd want to be treated ourselves if we were in the same position. We, you know, we would hate it if anybody ever got accused of bullying or sexism or racism or anything like that. So we want people to feel very comfortable about coming to the firm and feeling like it's their home, their family, uh, and they're treated with respect whatever position they are within the firm. So we've always tried to deal, you know, you're always going to get the odd issue that arises. And we've always tried to make sure that we are dealing with it with massive sympathy to the individual who's involved. Um, and at the same time, so, you know, we want people to feel comfortable about who they are in the firm and how they're treated. Um, whilst at the same time, making sure that the quality of the work that people are doing is, uh, is at the highest level. And um, that we make sure that we give a real quality to, to clients and they're treated with respect in the same way as we want to do with the staff. So you know, I think it's mostly about saying, look, you know, we have this goal of providing a real quality service to ordinary individuals in this country and abroad. Uh, and as a part of that, they want to be talking to people who themselves are treated with respect and with a firm who's prepared to put its money where its mouths are uh, and ensure that ordinary clients get the sort of support in, in, in the legal world uh, that you would in a big commercial practice. Yeah. I mean, what I find quite difficult as a founder is a, you know, and sort of running a firm, albeit much, you know, kind of uh, uh, tiny by comparison to yours, is just knowing when you've personally done enough, you know, to, to ensure the success of what you're trying to achieve. Um, and that can be just in the day. There's literally always something to do. There's always something that should have been done yesterday or last week. And, you know, you're establishing your own personal limitations and boundaries as a founder with this huge sense of responsibility, I find can be quite difficult personally. And I just wondered how, you know, how good are you with sort of knowing when you've done enough in the day or when you've done enough in, in, I guess even in your career, it's like when it when do you know that you've done enough? I mean, well, I don't think that's a question I really ask myself. I mean, for me, 
I have always tried to make sure I have a decent work-life balance. So, you know, I try and make sure I do lots of exercise in the week. I'm a regular tennis player. I have to leave the office at five o'clock so I can get home in time to play a game of tennis in the evening. Um, you know, I try and make sure that weekends I have a lot of, you know, there's some, you know, I probably do maybe two or three hours of work at the weekends, but no more than that, unless it's something particularly unusual. Um, and you just recognize that I could work every single minute of every single day and you would still not have done everything. Mm. So you simply have to prioritize what's most valuable for somebody at my level to be doing and then delegate to 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 the teams and the other partners, the other areas. But, uh, you know, I, I'll be buggered if I'm going to be working myself to death at my age. You know, it's part of the pleasure is having a kind of decent level of staff uh, and partners who are around you can take off some of that pressure. So, you know, the crucial thing for me is making sure I put my energy and time into things that really matter for the firm and for the direction of the cases that we're running. And, uh, you know, I think that benefits from you not being knackered from, you know, working out, you know, spending too much time checking the details of a letter that somebody else could easily have checked. Yeah, no, I, I get that totally. I do have a, a big note for myself on the top of my extensive priorities list, which is quite funny because it's like a really long list of priorities. But um, and it, it literally is, you know, does this have strategic value? You know, kind of what I'm working on now. Um, and that does sort of help me focus better on what should I be doing? What should someone else be doing? I do think when you set up a firm, there is a huge temptation in the early years just to try and do everything yourself. And I know for us, the, the crucial change came when we grew big enough to have, you know, a, a better level of infrastructure, you know, our own kind of part-time GC, our practice manager, um, and, you know, kind of partners taken on in other roles. Um, the happiest moment of my life was passing on the MLRO role, you know, that sort of thing. And I do think when you're setting up a firm, I think you probably need to be willing to embrace growth and make it big enough so that you can build that infrastructure. Otherwise, you will end up kind of doing it all yourself, which is just too much. Yeah, I think the art of delegation is one of the most critical things, isn't it? Is that is that knowing your team well enough that you could recognise who can do at what level and having sufficient confidence in them that you let go and feel, you know, there's always that letter that you think, well, I might have been able to change it here or there, but what's the point? Would it actually be a significantly different letter? You know, there's always things that you might want to, you know, you might do, but uh, unless it's actually making it significantly better, well, just leave it as it is. Let them have the confidence, uh, that your confidence in them to send the letter off unamended. Nice. And how much of your time is now spent sort of on client work versus sort of internal management? I've always tried to make sure that uh, the majority of my time is on my cases because that's my love in life. We've got a managing partner, Chris Benson, who does a brilliant job yeah. uh, managing the place. I'm absolute rubbish at anything like that. So, you know, we talk, you know, very regularly about strategic aims of the firm and the drive and where we're going and all that. So, but it's his job then to implement it. So that balance has worked well for me for 35 years. And I think that will carry on to like, uh, either get brought out of the coffin or uh, hang on my boots. And what about innovation? You know, there's a ma this massive focus on AI and other forms of innovation. Is there anything um, interesting 
maybe around your group action cases or in other areas of the practice where you where you guys have come up with an interesting bit of tech or I don't know a roving bot or something like that which has made a difference or is that still a work in progress? For most of my working life in the last 30-40 years has been international cases group actions uh, but in the last few years since we've been doing the emission cases last two years in particular um, getting involved in big group actions in the UK has been a revelation just in terms of how technology has changed so dramatically, how you bring on board a client um, and how you deal with clients. And it's been, you know, I've really enjoyed it. It's been massively interesting, you know, a real change from what I've been used to. And the use of AI and all that is, again, you know, something very different to what the rest of my legal life has been done. Now, I'd hesitate to say that we have any particularly exciting news. What, but what I think you can do is put it, bring a bit of perspective to, to it. So as the latest bit of AI kit kind of comes in uh, and you're told that this is going to do everything, including making your bread in the morning when you come in, um, you, you know, you recognise that actually uh, these things are often bollocks, you know, that, that uh, it actually is, you know, you're being sold a lot of equipment that, only does about 10% of what you're being told. Mm. Now, you know, maybe the 10% is valuable or maybe it's not, but uh, you just recognise that very few things have the massive strides that you're being told that they do have. So with me, and I suppose it's the, the danger is also being old, you kind of become much more suspicious uh, about this, uh, these new technologies. But, you know, I feel we're slowly moving forward. Um, and I, you know, AI will undoubtedly continue to develop what we do and have a, a bigger and bigger role in our working lives. But I, it will be small, gradual steps. It will not be the whopping steps that we are being promised when we get this bit of equipment or that bit of equipment. Yeah. So uh, you've taken on some pretty major Goliaths as a firm. I mean, is, are you afraid of anything? I mean, is there anyone where you'd go, oh, actually, you know what? Maybe we won't. I mean, not to make anybody out there feel comfortable, but, uh, you know, it's, it, what would be too scary for you? Well, I haven't yet come across the case, if there is such a case out there. Um, you know, you could imagine that there might be individuals or governments or companies that might be uh, scary monsters, but... You know, even if you think of the largest companies in the world, you know, well, I'd still happily take them on, you know, because in the end, the court's the court. There's only one judge um, and the judge may come to a decision. And the, you know, often it's, you know, they feel empathy with the, the ordinary individual uh, bringing their case. So, you know, I think largely whether it's governments, whether it's, uh, you know, like a regulator, whether it's massive companies, um, I feel comfortable you know as long as we feel that the case is strong and uh, it's right that we take the case um you know i feel hopefully we'll always feel it's right to take them on and not to worry too much um about the, the size or the impact of the of the defendant we're taking on mm, i love it the fearlessness of it is fabulous and i suppose in conclusion so what if you if you were starting again, if you were setting up Lee Day now, is there anything that you would do differently? 
Well, I think, I mean, to be frank, life has moved on so much. So when I started Lee Day with Sarah back in 1987, where there was lots of legal aid around, and, you know, I remember days when people, you know, you got funded properly for doing a case. Now, that all obviously disappeared and then went through a big phase where we had to fund everything ourselves. But now we are actually in a phase where we're getting outside funders to come in. Now, you know, what... For a long period, almost no new firms set up in terms of the human rights world. Um, because once legal aid gone, it was almost impossible for lawyers to get the funding together to be able to take on the risks involved in setting up a firm. But the thing is different now. We're now starting to see a number of firms set up who've got support from the funders. Um, so I think in terms of your question, I think depend on the era that one was setting up. But if you're setting up now, I would be saying, well, look, take the risk, because actually, um, you know, there are funders out there who are interested in taking on the risk. Um, and, you know, you've seen some pretty rapid growth, although it would make me nervous about growing too quickly. I think, you know, in the end, you're only as good as your team. And it often takes time for, to kind of work out who are the right people for, you know, the right thing. So you know, I'd be wary about speed, you know, I always feel that, you know, the faster you grow, the quicker you can come back down that same route. So, you know, be careful. But I think you know, now is as good a time as any in the legal times that I've been around over the last 40 years. It's as good a time as any to set a firm um, and to get going. You know, and I think um, with support of funders, you would have a real chance to make a go of it. Fantastic. That's very encouraging and inspiring for anyone else who might be listening, who is considering whether or not to set up a firm. So look, thanks so much, Martin. That's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it um, and giving us some of the highs and lows and how you've um, how you've managed throughout. And thanks so much. Keep doing what you're doing um, and, and I'll keep admiring. And um, thanks again for joining us. I hope uh, if you've got to the end of this recording, you've enjoyed it too. Um, Martin and Lee Day's details uh, will be on this uh, recording or with this recording. So I'm sure please feel free to get in touch with Martin and his firm if there's anything that um, you might like to discuss or potential cases that could be of interest. Um, and in the meantime, thanks again, Martin, and see you again soon. Cheers. My pleasure.